Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium 2017 podcast. The Big Screen Symposium took place in Auckland on the 30th of September and 1st of October. Please note, while many of the speakers used clips in their sessions, we've edited these out to better suit the podcast. On day two of the symposium, four exciting creative talents from New Zealand, Michael Bennett, Miriama McDowell, Jessica Hansel and Todd Karihana shared their thoughts on this year's theme, Authenticity and Pretense, and what it means in the context of their recent projects. Uh, ko te manu koroki me te rapunga ngā marae, uh, ko Miriama McDowell ahau. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Um, I thought that today I would speak to you all from the perspective of an actor, uh, although I also work as a director, a writer and a teacher in our industry. Uh, when I talk to actors who are just starting out in the industry, I do seem to have lots of actors who come and talk to me. Um, I, I often say that one of the hardest things about being an actor is not, um, it's not, it's not when there's not work. Um, it's actually when you have, to have, you have to make a choice about the work that you do. And uh, that choice um, is often between two different jobs, but it can also be between um, a commitment that you've made to family, um, or it could be between something that might happen that's really exciting and something that's definitely happening that is maybe not so exciting. Um, in my own career, I, I feel that, that it's the choices that I've had to make that have made my career more interesting and my artistic voice stronger and my work more authentic. Um, first of all, I'd just like to mihi to the, um, the um, other speakers today. Uh, Michael Bennett, um, tēnā koe matua. Um, he was the first person to give me a job on film. Uh, he came to my solo show, a theatre show, when I was still at Toi Whakari and um, he sent me an email and said, do you want to be in my short film? It was Kerosene Creek. Um, Leon Nabi was the DOP. And it was an amazing um, first start into the industry. So mihi to you, Michael. Michael's still a great collaborator. And we're always find, trying to find ways to work together still today. Um, also, Jess, Jessica Hansel, who was my best, my first best friend at primary school in Waterlee, at Waterlee, <laughs> Waterlee Primary School in Mangere Bridge, which is kind of crazy. But I remember as a kid thinking she was the funniest person I knew. And um, our, our paths sort of diverged, didn't they? No, we didn't have a fight or anything. Um, but I think it's amazing that we're here today speaking, that our paths have crossed again. So kia ora, Gil. Um, yes. So today I thought I'd talk about process. And my, my background is really in theatre, um, which is obviously a really different process and a different outcome to film. Um, for the actor, the emphasis is much more on, the, on finding the character and the dynamics of character relationships. And I do find that I find it to be a much more um, rewarding process than um, working as an actor in film. Um, when I started a family, I moved away from theatre into film and television because I, I couldn't really justify 
the amount of time it takes to make theatre, the, the number of hours that you're away from home. Um, so I started to work in film and television more, but in the past couple of years, I've come back to it. And what I love about theatre is um, how easy it is to turn an idea into something. Um, all you need is a room, a space, uh, sorry, all you need is a room and some collaborators and an idea. Um, I've been in a relationship with a filmmaker over the past 10 years and I've seen firsthand how, um, how much harder it is to take an idea when you're making a film and um, getting from that point to sitting in the cinema on opening night and, and um, seeing it made. Um, as an actor, I've always felt that it's because of the work that I do in theatre that I can show up on a film set and deliver a performance. Uh, the theatre rehearsal's like my gym, where I have an opportunity to go on a, a character arc and really get characters into my body and explore this, the triggers that set me off into um, big emotional access. I played Lady Capulet in the pop-up globe season of Romeo and Juliet a couple of years ago. And, um, and during the play, I had to cry three times um, it was when Tybalt died, when um, I thought Juliet had killed herself, and then when I found out she actually had killed herself. Um, and we did that show 50 times, so it meant that I had to cry 150 times over the space of about three months. And, uh, and so I used that process to, um, you know, figure out different ways to access that really raw emotion, and that, that was that obviously had to change all the time because you can't rely on the same tools all the time. You have to keep changing because um, of the pathways that you create to your emotional access, they get worn and then you have to try something different. So, um, of course, Shakespeare's words really helped. Um, and, and so I do things like um, sit on the vowel sounds. Um, you know, they say, they say that with Shakespeare, whenever there's an O, just an O, um, in his text, um, that's because the emotion is so big that there's nothing else you can do but, 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 um, but make that sound. And it's very similar to karanga, I find, you know, that if you stay on vowel sounds, your emotions immediately kick in. Um, but there was other things too, like it might be um, that I'd make eye contact with an audience member or it might be something really visceral like... Um, picking up Tybalt's blood and feeling the warmth and stickiness of it in my hands, or it might be something more conceptual, like seeing Juliet's shoe empty on the side of the stage and thinking of what it would be like to put her shoes back in the cupboard when I get home. Um, so yeah, it's, it's so wonderful as an actor in theatre to be able to explore all those different things. And um, you don't often have the opportunity to do that when you're making films. Also, sometimes I was just tired and I didn't have to do anything. I'd just cry. It was great. <laughs> um, so it's all that work that I do as an actor um, in the theatre. That means that when I show up to a film set, I can just turn those switches on and do it. Um, and that's in spite of the restrictions and in spite of the little rehearsal time and in spite of the sort of stop-start, dissected and blocked way that we make films. Um, when I worked on Mahana, I uh, was Lee Tamahori. <clears throat> I remember watching Nancy Brunning um, 
in the tangy scene where she, she basically reveals the whole secret of the film, um, which, uh, I mean, I'm sure you've all seen it, but <laughs> I won't reveal it. Um, but, uh, yeah, just watching the way that she had to stop and start, you know, it was like, like watching this big ramp of emotion and she was at the bottom of the ramp and she could see the pinnacle, she could see where she had to end, but... Um, being stopped constantly along the way to reshoot shoot tiny sections. Um, and Nancy's amazing, and of course she, she nailed that every time, but I thought, wow, that process really doesn't work for authentic performance. Um, I've been in about 20 television and film productions since I graduated from TOI in 2002. And um, I've, I've often wished that filmmakers could find a process that values that, um, that values the rehearsal process more, where we have more of an opportunity to go deep with directors and also with the other actors in our relationships. And um, um, that, yeah, that the process um, isn't stopped, that somehow we find a way that when we're doing big scenes, we're not stopped. Um, so my question's always been, how do we carve more time into filmmaking to rehearse actors so that when we go on set, we've got an idea, like in theatre, of all the places that we can go? Um, there's a few exceptions to this in, in the way that I've worked in film, and one of them is uh, uh, making The Great Maidens Blush, which um, we did over the process of two years in 2013-14. Um, that was with the director's... Andrea Bossard and Shane Loder. Um, and these two directors invested in a three-week rehearsal process before we started shooting the film. Uh, the first week they got um, a guy called um, Rob Marchand, who's a, um, a, uh, an expert in the Mike Lee process, to come over from the UK and work with the actors. So we worked for a week on character development. <coughs> um, so it was the lead actors and then there was a lot of sort of student actors or volunteer actors who wanted to learn about the process as well. And it was a really incredible way to work. Um, the emphasis was on developing and deepening the actor's understanding of the character and giving them real experiences um, with other characters before they got on the set. Now, don't get me wrong, this is the, the actor's job is to draw on their own experiences. Um, so, you know, I, I don't expect that every job I do, people give me little scenarios so that I can have new experiences to draw on, but I think that having an opportunity to work in this way was really incredible. So, for example, um, I worked for two days with um, an amazing actor, Randy Moana Taylor, who um, played my father. And so I had an opportunity for two days to work through different scenarios um, of our relationship. So, for example, one was I showed up at a place that was a medical centre and he happened to be there um, also getting an appointment. And then, um, you know, we could make a choice in that moment about whether we're going to talk to each other or ignore each other, pretend we weren't there or, or have some kind of a, a connection. The, the cool thing is that in the film, there's no scenes with my father at all. So I never, I never have any scenes with that actor. But um, I, I got to spend time with him so that my character um, deepened before I showed up on set. Um, and that did two things. 
One, it made me feel really valued as an actor because it was about the process, not the product. And two, it made my connection to the story deeper and more complex. Um, I, I really believe that both of those things mean that my work on set was much deeper and, and, um, and full. Um, another amazing experience I had rehearsing for that film was I played a taxi driver. And so for two days, I was given a taxi and a taxi stand and um, all I had to do was show up at that taxi stand over two days. So, it, you know, I just kept going back to it over and over again in this taxi. Um, and every time I got there, there was a different person there waiting to be picked up. And it was never someone I knew. So it was all actors that I'd never met before. Um, and so it was a great surprise every time I showed up. And they all had a different thing that they were trying to achieve. So it might be... Um, get the character to talk about politics or um, try and get away without paying, so try to appeal to her empathy. Um, and so it was just this amazing, like a jungle gym, you know, being able to try out all these different scenarios before finally getting on set, working with cameras and, and angles and, and just doing the scene that's been written. Yeah, so um, that way of working was really incredible. Um, I won the Best Actress Award this year for that role and also um, Best Actress at the Antipodean Film Festival in France for that role. And I really believe it's because of that time that we, sent, um, we spent developing those characters. So why don't we do that more? Um, is it because is it of money? I guess so. Um, but I know of lots of film filmmaking processes where we invest money in... Um, and body work. So we'll spend one or two weeks doing boot camps with our actors. We take them to gyms and we get nutritionists and we um, build their muscles so that uh, on the outside they look the right way. Um, uh, and, um, you know, maybe we're de developing their fighting styles or, or whatever so that they move in the right way. So I know that it's not impossible to invest time to develop um, actors. It's just that we put the time on the, on the superficial rather than the, the, the depth. Um, so that's, that's my challenge, really, to filmmakers, is to try to find ways to change that process and mix it up a bit more. Um, Waru, uh, the film Waru, which um, opened this year at the New Zealand Film Festival, was another example of really trying to change that model. Um, and, and I think it was um, really successful. You know, they got actors in, in the first week of developing the ideas for the script. Um, and so we sort of really fed into those stories and those characters. And then about six months later, they got actors in again to develop the scripts again once they had um, sort of had something on paper. And then once we were shooting, we spent two days rehearsing so one day rehearsing character, one day rehearsing technicals, and then one day shooting. So in the same way that um, we make theatre, um, there was more time spent um, on the rehearsals than the shooting itself. Um, and I think that that film really, in spite of the, um, how difficult it was technically, um, you know, doing one continuous shot, um, I think that the performances really come from um, finding a different way to involve actors in the process. 
um, that that film was really <laughs> difficult for me because um, it was so technical and I had to um, leave one place and end up in another place over 10 minutes. So it was beautifully timed. As long as I got the speed limit right and as long as I didn't, um, you know, have any, any accidents along the way. Um, but I left, so I left one driveway and had to arrive at another driveway 10 minutes later. And I only, and I probably left the first driveway about 30 times over the space of the day. And I arrived at the other door only twice in that day. Um, so <laughs> technically it was a really, a really big challenge as a film but I'm really proud of, of what we made. Um, so yeah. I'm gonna leave you with a thought. We would never expect actors to show up to the opening night of a theatre show unrehearsed. So why do we do that in film? Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Uh, thank you for sharing uh, your insight into the craft to achieve the authenticity you talk about. Um, uh, we turn now quickly, quickly to Tiape Tehua at Todd Karehan. Hemana Teni, Hana Mai Hokatane, Nonga Wakomatatu, Otarawana Hokida, Tumainga Hore Wananga, and he's a, a filmmaker who has a commitment to. Um, those old people we saw yesterday. Didn't that work, huh? Mm -hmm. I'll just pull my notes up. Um, ah, okay. Kia ora, I'm Todd Karihana. And I'll be talking about authenticity and pretense in relation to um, My Brother Mitchell, which is a short film that I wrote and directed uh, earlier this year, which was produced by my good friend, Mia Marama Henry Tierney. Um, oh, still got to get used to using a clicker and then scrolling on my laptop. <laughs> ah, awesome, okay. Oh, so just a little bit of background of the film. So this is a picture of me. I'm on the left side, and that's my older brother, Mitchell Nathan Karihana. Um, and here we're about 10 years old in our back, uh, front yard in Kawaro. Um, one year after these photos were taken, uh, Mitchell passed away by an accident in our garage. And I didn't really understand what was happening um, when he died, and so I bottled up my feelings and across the last 20 years. Um, and so when I was given the opportunity to make my master's thesis film, uh, myself and my supervisor, Brendan Donovan, we sat down and I chucked a few ideas around and he started to notice that all of my ideas kind of circulated around two brothers and one of them um, going through challenges with accepting that his brother died. Um, so Brendan challenged me to dig deep into my heart and to make a film about my feelings of losing Mitchell uh, as a process of healing. And so I took up the challenge. 
Uh, so I sat for weeks trying to recall happy memories um, that we shared together and really pushed myself to travel back to the day that he died and try to mine ideas um, to help me with the script. I drew pictures like this one here and wrote pages and pages of memories. Um, this one you'll see later in a clip that I'm going to show you. Uh, it was quite emotionally draining to, you know, travel back to that day and um, bring up all of those feelings that I thought I had dealt with. Uh, but I needed this film to speak authentically to my truth. And so I ask you to imagine how would you feel making a movie about um, one of the most significant and hurtful experiences that you've had in your life. Throughout writing the script, I spoke to different family members about their feelings and memories, and they humbly offered their own hurtful moments to help me make this project come to life. Uh, some of their memories have been blended into the film, um, from the script level all the way through to post-production. Um, and I think it's important to note there are you know, certain risks when you tell stories um, that have, you know, shared emotional investment from other people. Um, I think one thing was that my mum was quite worried about me making this movie because when he passed away, she was judged, um, judged by people in the town for being a bad mum. And so she was worried that bringing, bringing this story to life would um, give people another opportunity to judge who, you know, her as a mother and what happened with my brother and our family. Um, it's interesting making a movie that's kind of based on family members. You know, how do you portray them? Um, what are the ethics around collecting quite uh, hurtful material from people that you love? Um, yeah, it was an interesting process. And, you know, I always had to be mindful with what I was asking my mum and my brothers and sisters and um, how much of their stories I showed on screen. Um, so once the script was finished, so it took, I was writing from March last year to about June, July last year. And so once the script was finished, me and Mia, the producer, we both um, set out on finding collaborators. And um, through a series of conversations and help from Robin, um, Robin Scholes, we were lucky enough to um, connect with uh, cinematographer Alan Bollinger and also a production designer who understood how I felt because she had experienced something similar, um, Jane Bucknell. So just a premise on the film. Uh, on the night of Mitchell's funeral, Todd, in the act of love, takes Mitchell's body on a journey somewhere special for them both, leading their grieving mother on a search for her sons. I won't go into too much detail about the plot, as I want it to be a surprise for you, but we'll move forward and show you three different clips that'll help me unpack opportunities of truth and authenticity in the production of uh, this film. Play clip one, please. <laughs> oh. oh, actually, before we start. <laughs> uh, so this clip is a scene from the film during Mitchell's tangy. Uh, sitting next to him are the actors playing myself and my mother and an auntie is singing a lament of support um, to the whanau and family members sit nearby in the usual way that we do at Māori funerals. Cool, so um, 
One thing that really interested me in making this movie was blending aspects of uh, real and um, scripted and merging them together. And so um, with this particular clip, the locations that we shot in are places that we shared, me and Mitchell and our family shared in our life together. And so we returned to Kawarau, where I'm from, to shoot the film. And various locations that you're going to see through some of the clips are from our, you know, home. And so this is the Ruai Honda Marae, and that was where Mitchell had his real funeral. Um, he was laying where this actor um, is laying right there, in front of the third po. Um, you know, Kawarau is surrounded by pine forests, and in one of the other clips you'll see um, them travelling through this um, pined wasteland. Um, Tarawera River was a place that me and Mitchell used to swim, and you'll also see that um, in the full movie. And, um, you know, throughout the production, it was comforting knowing that we were close to my brother, where he lays. Um, and it felt like he was kind of looking over us and looking over the production, which was um, really special. Um, this is Poroaki Merritt MacDonald. In the process of making this movie, we included other people that experienced similar kind of feelings and hurt that I did. And um, he lost his brother to cancer last year. And um, we have felt very privileged to be able to share this journey with him and his family through their emotions and grief. Um, we felt like it was a tohu that he came on board because he signed up with the agency two days before our casting call went out. Um, and I think it was a really great opportunity for him and his parents, and when the film comes out, other people to be able to process their own feelings of loss. Um, Puruaki was able to face his feelings, uh, which is something that's taken me 20 years to do myself, so I'm very proud of him. Uh, this is my older sister, Camilla. Uh, she plays a special role in the film, singing a beautiful motiatia, um, which is woven throughout the story. Um, it was quite special having her on set, you know, knowing her connection to Mitchell and our story. And, um, yeah, I was very lucky that she was happy to come in front of the camera um, to help with my healing um, process. Um, there were other crew members and cast members that had lost someone else that was dear to them. And it was an opportunity for them to express their feelings in a way that can help heal others and also ourselves in the process. I encouraged everyone to put their hurt into the film and I feel like it gives it a particular weight which kind of emanates from the screen. So this clip is from a scene where Todd has uh, taken Mitchell's body from the funeral and their mother is trying to find them. Um, so for me, this, this image represents emotional weight. Um, you know, it feels like I've carried his death with me um, on my shoulders. And so I wanted the character to be tested physically and emotionally throughout this journey. Um, he pulls this trolley with Mitchell's body on the back through a number of obstacles. And in some ways, it kind of feels almost biblical. It's quite interesting. Um, small details in the film say a lot. Um, Mitchell died by an accident in our garage. And um, when me and the production designer got together, the trolley that you saw had a metal handle. Um, however, 
you know, rope is synonymous with my experience or my memories of his death. And so I wanted to include it in the film. And so um, Jane, our production designer, changed the metal handle into a rope because it is a, you know, it's a signifier for that hurt that I felt. Also in this clip, you would have noticed she's calling out Todd. Todd, using real names in the script um, was a big decision for me. You know, initially I used our middle names because it felt one step removed from the whole kind of experience. Um, but I pushed myself to really um, go for it. And so I used the real names, like my name, my mother's name, and Mitchell's name in the movie. It's quite a bizarre feeling when you hear a character saying your name as if it's calling to you. And the same goes for the title. You know, this film could be called a hundred different titles, but I wanted to use Mitchell's name uh, in the title because it says something about me as, the, as his brother and as the filmmaker. It's kind of an ode to Mitchell. This is, um, you would have seen that drawing that I had in the beginning of my presentation. Yeah, so this is the scene that came of it. Um, yeah, I'll just let it speak for itself. Oh, it's getting a little bit emotional. <laughs> um, you know, this is a real memory that me and Mitchell shared. We jump off the woodshed pretending to fly over the mountain. And whenever I see this scene, it kind of transports me back to us holding hands. I think it links nicely with the overall film, considering Mitchell is making a journey to heaven. Um, this, along with many other memories in the film, um, are based on real stories and real experiences. Um, there's a moment where the mother contemplates suicide. And, you know, my mum told me when I was on the phone with her one day that she wanted, she had those thoughts because she wanted to mother him in the afterlife. And so I tried my best to kind of show that experience while still doing my mother justice. For her, it was an act of love um, rather than grief. Uh, our production designer used real photographs as the basis for the costumes. Um, you would have seen in the second slide of my presentation, the two photos of us. We're wearing stripy t-shirts. And um, so she took all these photos that I had given her from our family albums and started to um, you know, recreate who we were in the, on these characters. Um, the hat that my mum is wearing in the scene where she's hanging out washing is um, something that she's synonymous with. She's always um, wearing flax hats and woolen jumpers and long skirts. Um, something else that's cool is um, my brother Julian edited the film. And that was a wonderful experience. You know, we were able to reconnect um, and share our stories because I was the youngest of the family and so we never really spoke about his passing. And so he was able to bring his own experience of losing Mitchell into the editing process and we were able to talk and heal through, um, you know, our month and a half of editing together. And just some thank yous. <laughs> um, just a big thank you to Mia, um, you know, one of my dear friends and this film wouldn't have been made without her help. And also Brendan Donovan, who uh, supported me and supervised me throughout making this film. And Robin Scholes for helping us along many parts of the process. Um, Ellen Bollinger and Jane Bucknell. 
and the cast and crew and all of their families that supported us. And also Ngaho Fakari, who helped um, you know, with funding and also Aroha and Manaki. And also just my family for um, supporting me to tell this story, which is you know, very personal to all of us. And so, and just in closing, I think authenticity for me, um, you know, can be throughout many parts of the production process and on, in many different ways. And uh, yeah, that's the end. <laughs> Koko toku ingoa, me Jessica Hansel Rane, he wahine Māori au i te taha o tōku mama, no ngā whānau a Moriwai, me a Kingi hoki, uh, ko Ngāpui, toku iwi, ko Ngāti Popoto, toku hapu, ko Mokunui Arangi, toku marae, ko Whakarongo Rua, te maunga, ko Utukura te awa, no Hamoa hau no Tiamani hoki, Ite taha o toku papa. Namahi nui, kia koutou katoa i tēnei rā. Um, it's awesome to be here. Um, I just want to acknowledge um, the Big Screen Symposium and Script to Screen for having me as a speaker here today. I'm still a bit surprised, <laughs> but it's cool. Um, it's a really big honour to kōrero with you all about... Um, authenticity and pretense, two things that um, come up for me in my practice often and have kind of trolled me throughout my whole life. Um, I'd also like to add that I only started saying practice without ear quoting and eye rolling and putting on a voice about a year ago. <laughs> so this is, you're kind of seeing me at a slightly mature stage of my artistry where I'm kind of admitting that it's real. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge um, my co-speakers. Thank you, Tainui, for the intro, um, and Michael Bennett for all of your important work. And um, Todd Karehana and I have been working on um, a drama series in an underground bunker for the last six months, so it kind of feels like cheating, like having my brother here. Um, yeah, amazing um, for Karo and presentation, my bro. But you knew that. Um, and, yeah, Miriama um, and I were best friends from the ages five to ten. We were kind of like the Māori biracial remix of those twins in The Shining. Um, <laughs> we were really inseparable, so it's just amazing that she's here. We kind of pop up, you know, a little bit throughout our, each other's lives. It's really special to see her. And um, somebody said to me the other day, um, kind of crack up, they're like, you know, I don't want to sound racist or anything, but I saw that poster of um, the Big Screen Symposium and Miriam have got like a similar look in your eye. I don't know, like, is that racist? <laughs> I was just like, you know, maybe, maybe because we were forming language when we knew each other, we were kind of forming our identities and personalities. So it's really cool to reappear in a context like this. Um, yeah. And like she said, we didn't have a fight or anything. She just, my parents told me she moved far, far away, which is Mangere before she moved to central Auckland. <laughs> um, 
For those who um, don't know me, um, I'm in this context a screenwriter and very early stage director, um, but I come from underground music and um, comics and independent press where I worked and I still do under the name Coco Solid. Um, yeah, I'm probably known best locally for being a rapper and a brat, but um, in recent years I made uh, my transition to screen with my web series and cartoon Aroha Bridge uh, that's screened um, just a short kind of five-minute episodes. I was inspired and influenced by adult animation and I saw that we don't really have that much, like, any um, locally. So I wanted to kind of, you know, I was influenced by Adult Swim and Liquid Television and the kind of cartoons of growing up. So I want to contribute to the pop cultural canon in that way and I was lucky to have it broadcast in between television shows on Māori TV, just in those little gaps. Um, and in Australia, and it was um, screened and spoken about at Imaginative in Canada. So that, that's that been an amazing journey with that project, and we're putting it into development for television at the moment. And I'm also part of the Picky Films Collective alongside Taika Waititi, Madeline Sami, Oscar Kitely, Victor Roger, and other uh, screenwriters. So I've been able to workshop and soundboard um, a lot of feature films that have come out in recent years. I've been able to put my little two two cents in and be a little annoying person. Um, and I'm workshopping through that initiative on my own film, which um, is due for release in 3023, the way that I'm going. <laughs> um, yeah, I also... Um, through the buzziness that is my practice. Um, I have been a writer at several different writing tables for the last couple of years, which has been really amazing for me. I still can't believe people get paid to do that, but that's cool. Um, and I have become a writer and a performer of a local um, sketch comedy show called Only in Aotearoa, which... Um, is a multicultural sketch comedy show on Māori TV. You can watch it on demand. Um, and it's hosted by the Frickin' Dangerous Bros, which is a trio of um, comedians. Uh, the whole writing staff and the cast, uh, we wanted to put out comedy primarily driven by people of colour in New Zealand, just because we felt, again, there was a kind of a gap in that market in terms of the comedy scene or collective voice that was being presented. So it's been a real honour to be a part of that. I'm still a bit uncomfortable with the thespionage that, but, you know, if there's a woman needed in the scene, you know, you've got to do what you've got to do. Um, I'm um, Māori and German Samoan, uh, and those ideologies of racial equality and uh, manawahine feminism and queer equality uh, underpins and, and advocating for rangatahi and putting people on, basically, um, underpins my voice, I think, in heaps of what I want to contribute locally to pop culture. So about the kaupapa today, I feel there's, for me anyway, there was always a bit of a danger of being a bit ironic and inauthentic when you're public speaking 
because you're performing the best parts of yourself and you're discussing your productivity with such zeal and a suspicious amount of editing, like, you know, oh, do you procrastinate? I'll be like, no, it wasn't in the speech, therefore it doesn't happen, you know? (laughs) And so I have to really check myself when I'm kind of in this Las Vegas circuit of talking about what I do, you know? So to speak about authenticity like this, for me, can sometimes feel like, you know, doing a lingerie catwalk for modesty, it like, can be a bit of a tension. <laughs> but I always, um, for me, I enjoy a chance to be vulnerable and demystify what motivates and mobilises me as an artist and a thinker because it gives me autonomy and connection to discuss my work on my own terms, which as a wahine in the creative racket, you, you never get as easily as others. Um, these things aren't really promised to us as often, so I think that's because whether you like it or not, as soon as you enter into this industry, your voice is politicised from the moment you start using it. And that's a lot of responsibility that I don't think many of us ask for, but we grow into it. I did anyway. Um, Pretense, I feel, gets a pretty unfair rap as the baddie. Um of this theme, you know, the facades we wear and the masks that we need to take off and the incomplete trailer of self. But um, I just want to give a moment to acknowledge, (laughs) sounds like I'm going to like lobby for being a fake ass, but I'm not. Um, (laughs) We all need to just, for me, I honour the fact that we all need to contextually change and shift to survive every day. to enable other people's stories, to code switch, that's just a natural part of my life. Um, I'm a multicultural, multi-class, multidisciplinary person. So the art of changing is my comfort zone. But more so it's how I survive. It's how I fiscally get by in the world. So I don't begrudge myself the way we have to code switch. I don't feel guilty about it. I'm just trying to live. And I think that's the story of a lot of uh, marginalised artists everywhere, even some of the privileged ones. You would have to be um, a fairly privileged person to have never accessed pretense all your life. And I believe in using that, um, in using a certain different modes that you're not actually depleting your authenticity. You're not like, you know, you're just basically... We have a sketch on Only in Aotearoa, which went uh, viral recently. Um, And I wrote um, that is about, you know, some friends hanging out at their flat and they're not getting the internet connected fast enough. And they're kind of saying, you know, oh, come over here, you need to use your white voice. I need, you know, we need better service. And so, you know, they call me over, and this is a true story based on a cousin who drove 40 minutes to see me because Slingshot wasn't listening to him. And he was like, can you, can you use that, you know, that parking voice you use? And we always get things, like, quicker. And I was like, hello, Caleb, how are you? You know, you, you, get, you get straight into it. It's a fact, you know, and... I think the reason why it had such a big response with people was because if you look at the thousands of comments, it's Māori and Pacifica people in New Zealand and in Australia who all work in call centres. And they're all like, oh, 
oh, yeah, oh, this is us, you know. This is us when we're trying to get our bonus, you know. This is us when... And I just realised that that's part of the, you know, A, that's part of colonisation, but B, that's part of the human condition is that we're all just trying to, you know, use the avatars we need to connect with each other or get by or do what we need to do to get to the next level. Um, and I think people are using authenticity and pretense and where they intersect every day to comical effect and pr productively. And I'm a child of multiplicity and I'm born in the gaps and the ambiguities of things. So I've had to consolidate with hypocrisy, paradox, the myth of the self um, and hybridity, all that chaotic stuff, fairly young. Um, and once I made it through some pretty standard issue identity stuff, I've felt um, my power lay in storytelling that stuff, you know, the mess, um, that's where I feel I'm happiest is in the, the tensions and the hypocrisies where things don't make sense. I feel like that's where I'm often brought in as a translator of sorts. And um, the multiracial messiness of family, which is how Aroha Bridge started, and the ambiguity of racial and gender politics um, my very first band when I first started getting into music was um, an all-girl band called The Pussies. And um, we had a vague manifesto, very vague, very poorly thought out. But it was, um, we didn't really play our instruments that well, but all you had to do was you had to have two parents of different races. And so you had to be, you know, an afakasi or whatever. And um, we had a... Uh, Indian, Scottish member, uh, Balinese, English member, uh, Māori and English member, and me, Māori, German, Samoan. And that was it. That was kind of like the crux. <laughs> <laughs> and we would just get up and, you know, sing about that stuff. And for me, it was really freeing. And that was kind of the beginning, one of the first visible things that I did where I was like, I think this is what I'm meant to do. I'm meant to say, you know, you have a license to be here. You're allowed to be here if you don't make sense to other people. Um, so when we think about authenticity, often we think about, you know, keeping it real. Um, no lies, no filter, you know, which I think is good and it's very endearing. Um, <laughs> and allowing myself to have modes and lenses has been pretty freeing and authentic for me too. Um, yeah, so I came from underground music and so there's a lot of kind of punk mentality there. And the irony of that is that with the um, ideology of punk, which is, you know, do it yourself, it's just free for all, man, it's just, you know, whatever, there's actually a lot of ironic policing and punishing as, you know, do you, are you really punk enough? Like, are you selling out, bro? And I... I allow myself to withhold and guard and have boundaries and care for my cultural, creative and psychic matter these days. I don't really care what anybody else has to say. Um, I build those kinds of conditions for myself as a practitioner um, because I feel we need to acknowledge a truth and that's that practitioners who ground themselves in their truth, in their identity, in their communities, are actually getting co-opted 
a lot more these days and we're actually needed more, especially because audiences are sick of seeing the same old narratives and the same old archetypes over and over again. So people want to get shit spicy, you know? So they find themselves in like a bit of a conundrum. They're like, mm, where, are those, where are those minorities at, you know? We need to really get stuck into them a bit more. It's like, yeah, about 200 years too late, but oh gee, you know, I'll take it. <laughs> um, this is as concepts of diversity, you know, get popularised and um, consequently they get cheapened and our authenticity as these opportunities come our way more and more, I actually find that they get tested a lot more. You know, it's a good time to be a storyteller from all walks of life, but that also creates a um, glut of poison chalice moments. You know, I often am presented with opportunities where I have to really think long and hard, like, is this for real? Like, do they really want my voice or do they want to be seen with my voice? Because the reality of my voice, sometimes, you know, that's going to mean that you're accountable to my voice or you, I'm going to disagree with yours in, in ways that may hold up what it is you seek to make. So it's kind of like, are you for real or not? Or, you know, I have to look at that inbox a little bit harder. And as a um, marginalised storyteller, yeah, I have more opportunities than ever before, as do a lot of my peers to make a pop culture contribution to the landscape, to create watershed moments in terms of how our, our identity as a country is being presented to ourselves and to the outer world. But I also have to ensure that I'm not performing a preconceived idea of who I am, again, for diversity's sake, again, to like cover my ass, you know? That, you know, I'm very aware that there may be context where it's like, oh, we need a Maori, we need an Islander, we need a woman, we need someone that the gays trust. You know, I think I've got the girl for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very aware of that. And you become increasingly aware of it. And you're, if you are a real one and you're of the community and you're living in it in a very day-to-day um, -day way, you understand that you have a responsibility to the people who trust you and trust your voice. So you do have to consider very carefully um, whether people are really ready for it or not. And those opportunities are fairly transparent as well because we sense when it's an empty gesture or when it's been kind of fast-tracked and when we are actually an integrated co-founder of a concept, we're not actually stupid and as a writer, artist, musician, I found my voice online. Uh, that's where I got a lot of, um, I found a lot of my community, I found a lot of my following. Because I feel like uh, the internet's one of the most democratic and fraught and brutal and beautiful, brutal syndicator known to mankind, woman, kind. I feel for me it has never been the second screen or the sidekick. It actually offered me a leverage and a following and a raw exposure that was completely different and completely on my terms, which I think if you grow up under um, film, you know, the Hollywood machine and broadcast television and broadcast radio, you're not afforded that. 
you think that you have to be, you know, a participant in a template that's already been erected. I feel like the rules are being up for grabs within the online space for me. That was why I've always been so comfortable there. And I find myself now in the intersections of those spaces, which is really interesting. I think it's because online always suited my, um, oh, she's always popping off about some shit, you know, or, oh, she's always creating some crap. That was, that's online, you know, those, that's where people like me go. So again, you have practitioners from that space needed in the traditional space of TV and film more and more because we come up in a virtual climate of being ourselves or TMI, I don't know. Um, as a Māori person, I see um, Māori historically are depicted as the sidekick of colonial culture, you know, the little kind of afterthought, the footnote. So to see my Māori tanga and my um, practice that I accrued in uh, the online space kind of start to come together for me is really surreal and I feel really blessed. I'll always stay sus because that's just how I am. But I am, you know, very aware of the privileges that things are being afforded to me. And so I go into asking myself, oh, well, what's being authentic then? You know, is me being authentic confessing to you all that I woke up at 6.15 in a hot sweat thinking that the speech sucks and that I reworded it? Slightly, yes. But it's also me saying that um, I've had my voice erased and disrespected and I've felt body snatched in the creative community of collaboration. I've felt reduced so many times that that is part of my practice is trying to make sure that it doesn't happen to other people like me, whether that's younger people or people of my kind of cultural makeup or people I find that aren't easily as afforded a voice as me. That's... For me, that makes me feel better being a kaitiaki to um, people coming up who have a certain disposition like me or a worldview like me. I would not like that to happen to people anymore. <laughs> Authenticity to me is acknowledging that the flux and the uncertainty of what I do and look for, it's, it's about modulating you know, we all have um, different voltages and capacities that we bring to every situation and we have different selves. Um, and I use all of these things as an artist to garner connection and to get myself in a space of empathy when I'm being a storyteller. And I know when to hand over the keys of a story when it's not my story to tell, which I think is a huge issue within this industry, locally as well which I feel a lot of people still need to learn. They still feel like, I just feel that that story needs to be told. Yes, maybe, but if it's not your story to tell, how are you going to tell it effectively, appropriately, correctly? I feel there needs to be a little bit of staying in lanes and people falling back and enabling others who don't have that opportunity often to be able to do that because then you really are kind of electing yourself to do that and... The desire to vanilla wash real stories is strong, but the holistic benefits of helping people tell their own is priceless, which sounds like a visa ad, you know? <laughs> Cameraman, $200 per hour, not stealing a minority story, priceless. Um, 
outside of my own view, um, I'm a woman and I've been privy to mood swings of tides and moons and blood since I was a young person. And for me, abandoning the theatre of the pristine is the way to go. I will advocate for that all the time. You know, anti-perfection all the time. Because acknowledging the places where my internal tectonic plates don't quite touch has um, led me to this kind of context, this weird, surreal situation, which is also cool. Um, And for me, I find it interesting how you don't realise, even with the smallest weirdo reach and visibility that you have, how many people who are cut from the same psychic cloth as you are watching and attaching meaning and leadership to you. Uh, For me, uh, it was one girl She wasn't skinny and she saw me rap and she decided that she wasn't going to hate her body anymore because she saw someone, you know, her size who was, you know, being extra. And she thought, oh, I can do that too. And she came up and she told me that and I was like, holy shit, you know, I stopped someone from hating their body. That's incredible. It would have been in like some bar downtown. It was someone who never felt Māori enough they saw Aroha Bridge and they DM'd me because they realised that Māori families don't have to look like a Welcome to Rotorua postcard from the 60s. <laughs> they can look like anything. And someone sees me in a white male-dominated industry, you know, whether that's rap or whether that's comedy, whether that's animation, basically everywhere I work. Um, if they see me, like on a writing table, they're an up-and-coming person, and they see me say, you know, get the fuck out of here, as if that's not going to happen, they get heartened by that autonomy, and immediately it's a political act, and I feel the human condition can't help but connect with that. It gives me meaning to my work, and um, it gives me a certain fire to radicalise the culture or the form of whatever medium I'm working in, at least I'm trying to improve it, trying to improve the toxic, outdated value systems that plague the industry for others. And community, very kind of grassroots, simple IRL community gives my voice its dimensions and allows me to earn and depict its inner workings so I understand I'm actually in service to my communities that I belong to. And that responsibility grounds me in my truth of sorts. So that's ultimately my relationship with ideas of authenticity and pretense. I find if I stay anchored in service to something bigger than myself, to the people who don't have the faculties to share their view, but they deserve to have their story respectfully and inclusively told, whether that be on screen or paper or in an abstraction of music, I feel centred and intuitive and on the right track. If my truth limits my professional opportunities, then I don't think that they're the opportunities for me. Thank you. Kia ora koutou. Um, I want to thank Script the Screen for inviting us to speak at this important session. I want to thank New Zealand On Air very much for sponsoring this session. Uh, Thank you, my fellow speakers, for your inspiration and your wonderful words. Thank you, Tainui, for your introduction. Um, 
I think time might be a little bit of the essence. So what I might do, apologies, I'm going to just follow my script uh, to make sure that I stay on the 15 minutes. Um, I am the kind of guy that you don't want to be next to at a party because I can talk about Tana for three hours and I'll resist that temptation today. Um, just going to start with this quote. In 2011, I got an email from a private detective. Um, he was a stranger to me and he said in his email, there's a case that I'm working on that I think you might be interested in. Um, I'd love to meet. I met Tim McKinnell a few weeks later. It's not every day you get an email from a private eye and you don't turn that one down. Um, and Tim showed me some videotapes, some crappy degraded VHS videotapes from 20 years earlier of a police interview that took place over four days in a South Auckland uh, police interview room between two of the most senior detectives in the South Auckland Police Force and a young 17-year-old Māori Pacific Islander, Taina Porter. Uh, over the course of those four days, the interview tapes are nine hours altogether. Um, the kid sits in this small yellow room. Um, what's in front of him on that desk is a reward notice, $20,000 reward for information that will lead to the arrest of anybody involved in uh, a particularly awful murder that had happened a year earlier. Susan Burdett was killed in her own home. The case was unsolved and had become a cold case. So Tana, most of us I think are probably reasonably familiar with the case by, by now, but just as a really brief recap, Tana was, at the time, he had a two-year-old daughter. He'd had his daughter Chanel at the age of 15. He was a wonderful, loving dad um, who was looking after his daughter the only way he knew how, which was to nick cars from the mongrel mob. His career choice wasn't going brilliantly. When the $20,000 reward sitting on the table in front of him, uh, he, he built the goal uh, of convincing the police that he was involved in this terrible murder in order to get that $20,000 reward before anyone figured out that he was telling a pack of lies. He'd get the $20,000 reward, be out of there, and be out of New Zealand with his daughter um, before his lies were discovered. And we know now that's not how it worked out. Um, it was a surreal experience watching those nine hours of videotapes. It was absolutely clear throughout the videotapes, for anyone who takes an objective look at them, that Tana had absolutely no idea about the crimes he was confessing to. Watching those nine hours of crappy old tapes was easily one of the most devastating experiences of my life. I watched as step by step this increasingly confused and bewildered young guy made a, a series of nonsensical, crazy, increasingly ridiculous confessions that would ultimately send him to jail for over 20 years. Watching those tapes made me, by turns, furious, it filled me with disbelief. I cried more than once. I watched a young man, barely more than a child, his life being destroyed in front of me on those videotapes. A week later, I met Tana for the first time. It was the first time I'd ever stepped into a prison. It was the first time I'd ever shaken hands with a convicted murderer. I was nervous. I was expecting to meet someone who was angry, who was bitter. I put myself in his place. By then, I knew that he had nothing to do with the crime. 
I thought if I had gone through what he'd done, what he'd gone through, every morning I'd get up and I'd be punching the walls of my cell. The guy that I met was the opposite of what I'd expected. Tainer was, um, there was an entirely unexpected gentleness to Tainer. He was, he was in his 30s by then, but um, Tainer still had a face that was not so different to the face of this 17-year-old boy in the, in the prison cell. It was a little bit like time had sort of stood still behind those prison fences. Tainer's conversation was everything but angry. He was soft-spoken, he was philosophical. His daughter Chanel was 19 by then. She had a son of her own. She had a little boy, Benson. Tainer was a grandfather. Um, what Tainer talked to me about a lot was his family, and he talked always about hope, about the hope that one day, just maybe one day he'd be out of this place. One day his grandson would call him grandpa and wouldn't think of him as the guy in the orange prison jumpsuit. On one of those early visits, as we were sitting at a table talking, in Paremoremo Unit 6, you, it's the, the prison visiting area is kind of nice. You have little picnic tables. It's outside. Uh, it's kind of nice, apart from the fact that you're surrounded by six-metre-high razor wire fences. We were talking at the picnic table, and a ladybird landed on the table between us. We were chatting about the, the all-black test that had happened the night before, and Tainer was talking. The ladybird crawled across the table towards Tainer, and I was, I was sort of watching. Tainer lifted up his finger, and I thought, okay, that ladybird's about to get squished. This is about to be one ex-ladybird. And Tainer just kept talking. He put his finger down beside the ladybird on the table, and he watched as the ladybird crawled up onto his finger. He lifted up his finger, and he very gently blew on his finger. The ladybird's wings opened, and the ladybird flew out through the prison fence. After that visit with Tainer, after seeing the man that he was, I went home and I told my partner Jane and my family, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an investigator, I don't know how to organise protest marches, I don't know how to organise um, petitions, I don't know how to lobby the government, but what happened to Tainer is fucked. I have to do something about it, and what I can do is I'm a storyteller. And I told my family that telling Tainer's story was going to be one of the most important things that I would do in my life. Um, that visit was the start of a long, ongoing journey that's still going. 2013, I made a documentary with my friend Catherine Fitzgerald for Māori television, The Confessions of Prisoner T. Uh, 2016, I wrote a book on the, play, on the case called In Dark Places. Next month, we start shooting a dramatic film for television, uh, for TV New Zealand, about Tainer's story, an adaptation of the book. Early on, a friend of mine, a, a, a great documentary maker, told me, stay objective. Don't get emotionally involved in this. You're a filmmaker. You're a writer. Your job is to be the objective eye. Your job is to keep a clear mind. Whatever you do, keep the distance. Don't let yourself get in over your head. It was terrific advice. I honestly believe it was the right advice, and it was advice I just couldn't take. From the moment I saw this videotape, saw what had actually happened in that interview room to Tainer, from the moment I met Tainer and knew the man that he actually was, I was already emotionally involved. 
I made a conscious choice with this. If I'm going to tell this real story, I can't keep my distance. If I'm going to tell the authentic story of Tainer, I can't stand outside and just observe his journey. I have to commit and I have to be part of it. The result was many, many highs and many, many confronting lows. Um, at one stage, because his, his daughter Chanel doesn't have a car, Tainer was granted his first home leave in two decades. Um, I went and picked him up with his daughter and took him back to his daughter's place. That was an extraordinarily sobering experience. When you're granted home leave for the first time, you get out, you, you have four hours. They, they graduate it and you get more and more hours uh, as you get down the, the home leave system. I thought this was incredibly cruel. You put a guy away for 20 years for something that he didn't do and you give him just four hours outside. Um, but driving out the gates with Tana, I got a glimpse for the first time of what institutionalization really means. I could feel beside him as we drove out the prison gates this incredible growing tension. He was like a block of concrete. And the tension just got worse and worse. He started to relax a little bit on the motorway as we went through Spaghetti Junction, and he started to recognize a few places where he used to go joyriding with the cars that he nicked. Um, but then we got further to South Auckland, and his, his tension seemed to just get stronger and stronger until when we got to his daughter's place, um, he was pacing and he was really unable to relax. And what I realized was that what was making him tense was freedom. For most of us, the worst nightmare is to be stuck in a prison cell. For Taina, after two decades of imprisonment, his worst nightmare had become being outside the prison fence. He'd learned to live in a cage, and being outside that cage was hugely more stressful than being inside it. After just two hours, he said, please, can we go back? I've had enough. In Paremoremo, the sex offenders unit is just across the field from Unit 6, which is minimum security. So Tainer was in minimum security. He could see the sex offenders unit. Sex offenders is the unit where Malcolm Rewa is imprisoned. Malcolm Rewa is the serial rapist who was convicted of raping Susan Burdett. Uh, he's never been convicted of her murder, and Malcolm Rewa is, without doubt, the only person who truly knows what happened the night that Susan Burdett died. One day when I was visiting Tainer in the Unit 6 visiting room, Tainer was looking across at sex offenders, and I knew something was up, and he said um, he'd heard that Malcolm Rewa had found God. Tainer's face was kind of full of hope in a way that was a little bit, I knew something, he was, there was something bubbling inside him, and he said, do you think now Malcolm might tell what happened? If Malcolm said what really happened that night, we wouldn't have to go through all this privy council shit, right? It would fix it up. Do you think Malcolm might talk? That was a particularly difficult visit. I had to tell Tana, no Tana, I really don't think that's going to happen. One time when I'd taken Chanel to visit Tana, driving her home, I, I could sense that she, she was a little bit, she was particularly emotional and, and she, said, she said to me, I love Dad, I believe he didn't do those things to that woman but I don't know, there's people in the family who say he was there, who say he wouldn't have confessed unless he was actually there. I want to believe Dad's innocent, but I just don't know. I, had, I didn't realize that Chanel simply hadn't seen all the stuff that I'd seen. She just didn't know. 
And I was able to tell her, Chanel, I've seen every scrap of the case against your dad. He wasn't there. He was nowhere near Susan Bidet's house. He is completely innocent of everything that everyone has said about him. Chanel is a lot like her dad. She's got the same beautiful open face, dark black eyes. She smiles easily like Tana. She doesn't ever get angry and she doesn't really cry. She cried the rest of the way home that day. Um, there were the highs. There was the incredible high of going to the Privy Council in London. I was on the phone texting to Tana. There's this weird thing in the Privy Council, like, you know, one of the highest court in the Commonwealth, but you can actually be on your computer, you can blog, you can, um, uh, you can text, you can do what... So Tana, I was texting Tana while the, uh, the Privy Council hearing was taking place because, of course, Tana was home in New Zealand because he's a convicted murderer and he can't hold a passport, he can't even go to his own hearing. So I was texting Tana just to say how the case was going and um, so within 20 minutes of the Privy Council hearing starting in London, one of the eccentric English law lords, and they are all eccentric, um, said, quote, you don't need to be an expert in false confessions to see that this kid knows nothing about the crime and he was nowhere near the place. After that, I sent Tana a text, I think you're going to be all right, bro. And then the biggest high of all, the night of the decision from the Privy Council. Everyone involved in the case came to our house to be together to hear the decision. Afterwards, after Tana was exonerated, after all of the laughing and the crying and the drinking, at about two o'clock in the morning, Chanel was trying to drag Tana out, get him home, get it back to, his, to her place. Tana finished his last beer, sitting next to my partner, Jane, and he quietly said to her, when I was in prison, I only had half a heart. Chanel only had half a heart. Now we've got a whole heart and nothing's ever gonna change that. As a result of the work of a whole lot of people, but most of all, the extraordinary Tim McKinnell, that private investigator that I first met early 2011, Tana has finally been exonerated. He's been compensated after a fashion. But one thing I want to say is that the systemic faults in our legal system that allowed this shitty, ridiculous mess to ever happen, they've not been fixed. The ingrained systemic racial prejudice in our justice system has not been fixed and statistically it's just getting worse. Māori are far more likely to be picked up and questioned for any given offence than non-Māori. If questioned, Māori are far more likely to be arrested. If arrested, they're far more likely to be convicted. If convicted, the sentence for Māori will be longer. In terms of wrongful arrests and wrongful conviction, what happened to Tana, Māori and PI are far more likely to be victims. Māori make up 13% of society, but brown skin makes up over 53% of our prison population and still rising. Tana is the most visible worst case scenario of a legal and judicial system that lives and breathes a clear racial bias and prejudice and all of this we should all be angry and ashamed about. The title of this session is Authenticity and Pretense. I'm not sure how to contextualise my work on telling Tainer's story in terms of authenticity and pretense. I'm not sure if as a filmmaker and a writer I've been in the least bit objective or clear-eyed in telling Tainer's story. 
and I'm really not sure if that matters to me. This is what I know. For me, this was never about wanting to make a documentary. It was never about wanting to write a book. It was never about wanting to make a film. For me, telling Tainer's story was always about one thing. It was about the deep, hard, awful, sick pain I felt when I first watched those shitty, devastating VHS tapes. It's about the despair I felt that day. It's about what made me furious, what drove me to tears. What happened to Tainer Porter, what happened to my friend, plain and simple, it was fucking wrong. Thank you. session is presented by New Zealand On Air. The Big Screen Symposium is brought to you by Script to Screen and JNA Productions. We would like to thank our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, Images and Sound, Auckland Tourism Events and Economic Development, and Stage and Screen Travel Services. Voiceover is provided by Samantha Dukes and music by Poddington Beer.